Hi folks, this is Patrick. Welcome back to Bibliology, a podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the show, you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Michael Bird about things that Christians need to know about the Bible. Mike is academic dean and lecturer in theology and New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and is also distinguished research professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. His areas of specialization include Pauline studies, Christology, and patristics, and he has also written widely on the nature of biblical authority, which will form a large part of this episode's conversation. His new book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible, is very good, very helpful as a popular level introduction and resource for Christians who are looking to delve deeper into their theology and their Bibles, um, and you could find this in the description below. Um, that said, I got to talk to Mike about the various themes of this new book, and without further ado, let's get on to the conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for having me, and hello to all your listeners. I'm going to start with a set of Brief questions, just so we can understand um, Mike Bird and his and his world a little bit better, that sort of thing. So I'm curious, and anyone can tell just by listening to those few words that you're Australian. So, what is the most dangerous Australian animal you have ever encountered? I have encountered at close proximity a uh, tiger snake. And why is a tiger snake so dangerous? Can you tell us? Uh, because it's quite venomous and uh, it would definitely bite and we were near its eggs and it was not in a, a happy or um, state of mood that it wanted to negotiate. It was in a very foul mood. So we kind of removed ourselves as fast as possible from the snake's territory. Okay. At, at least say it's, it, it's still not as dangerous as walking through Euston at night. <laughs> and... Um... Was and at least it wasn't a brown snake, because yeah, that, yeah, that's 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 they're bad too, and even worse are the taipans. Yeah, yeah, that's probably one of the worst ones. Yeah, I when I was younger, I used to um, read books about animals, as all children do, and I think seventy five percent of all the venomous creatures came from Australia. And you yeah. know, I and I and I was wondering quite frequently, you know, what, did they exist before the fall? Uh, yeah, but. but <laughs> Um, just uh, maybe moving on to something more wholesome um, what book of the Bible have you read the least and why why oh I don't know it would probably be something from the book of the 12 12 minor prophets so probably something like Zephaniah would probably be the the one I've led probably because I haven't dabbled too much in the minor prophets Uh, I've never done a sermon series on them uh there's not a lot of references to Zephaniah in the New Testament. So probably some of the minor prophets I haven't spent a lot of time reading. Although I have read I have read some of them. Uh, I've read a fair bit of Habakkuk and you know Amos and all that, but I haven't really got into a lot of those minor prophets books. What can you remember about the book of Zephaniah off the top of your head? Well, it's based on the teachings of the prophet Zephaniah. It goes to the Persian period, and I think there's some warnings of judgment from memory. Mm. which is pretty generic if you think of the minor prophets. <laughs> could, yeah. They could describe a, a lot of the minor prophets. 
Yeah, yeah. And on your Wikipedia page, you're described as a theologian and a Bible scholar. Um, uh, how how would you? First of all, I'm not sure if you're one of those people who like sometimes just checks your Wikipedia page just to you know make sure that everything is. Oh, some people have said some tawdry things about me on that Wikipedia page, so I just I just ignore it. But people, yeah, people who don't like me do do use it as the opportunity to slander me a bit, and I just assume that someone else will correct it at some point. Okay. Well, there was nothing bad on when when I when I went on it, so um, I think you're you're okay there. So, as I was saying, you're described as a theologian and a Bible scholar um, on it. So, how would you explain uh, the difference? To a layman between these two fields and um, which of the two disciplines do you prefer? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. What's the difference between being a biblical scholar compared to a theologian? There was a Swiss theologian called Karl Barth who I think came up with a very good distinction between the two. Uh, he said a biblical scholar um, asks, um, what is what does this text say? Okay, so that's a biblical scholar. You, know, you look at Isaiah or Leviticus, Luke, or Roman, see, what does this text say? A theologian asks, rather, what do we say based on all of the texts put together? Okay, I think that's a good good distinction. But so you could say exegesis or being a biblical scholar is more of an analytical enterprise, looking at what's in the text, what is actually said, affirmed, and stated in a book as a whole or in a verse, whereas a theologian is, is doing a bit more synthesis, saying, okay, in light of, you know, what, what does Isaiah, Luke, and John um, say about salvation and, and how do we say something that reflects the unity and diversity of their total witness mm. uh, and then add in some insights from church history, add some insights from, you know, talking to your own culture, how do you speak the sum of biblical truths into your own culture in light of the wisdom of the Christian tradition. Mm. So that's what I would say. There's the analytical task of uh, exegesis, and then there's the synthetic task of theology. Mm. And some people, they would say within theology, there's two branches, you know, systematic and biblical, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, well, well, biblical theology is also, that can mean very different things to different people. Uh, it can mean anything that's biblical. It can mean theology that's different from the more dog, dogmatic or scholastic theology of the Middle Ages. Um, biblical theology is the attempt to state what is in a uh, book. So you could do a, a biblical theology of, say, Paul, uh, of Romans. You know, what, what are the main themes and motifs of Romans? What are the main themes and motifs of Paul? Or you can do it thematically and you can trace a theme like um, covenant, or kingdom, uh, or certain you know ethical commands like love for God and love, or you know, the theme of love through a, a particular corpus, whether that's the Gospels or the Catholic letters or the Minor Prophets or the Pentateuch. Um, so even biblical theology can mean a little bit different things. You can try to do it thematically, or you can look at a particular biblical book or a corpus of books within one of the Testaments. Mm. Okay, well. Uh, needless to say, you know a lot about the Bible, and that's what you've decided to write a book about, and um, that's what we're going to be speaking about today. Um, and this is your new book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. There's also a link to the book uh, in the description. The first chapter of your book is entitled, um, The Bible Didn't Fall Out of the Sky. How common would this view 
be among church folk? And to what extent should we expect ordinary churchgoers, um, people maybe who are just very busy with their day-to-day lives, um, to what extent should we expect um, these people to understand the complex process that undergirded the making of the Bible? Yeah, this this is a good question because, you know, people just sometimes wonder where did it come from? And then you've got the sort of two extremes. You've got on the one hand people who think that, um, you know, maybe God dictated parts of the Bible to certain people or it was just given to the church. You know, the apostles wrote it and people instantly realized it was inspired and authoritative and they kind of added to the kitty as if the church was collecting these ancient spiritual treasures and then, you know, uh, Kabumbalanga, they just magically kind of ended up with, with the New Testament and the Old Testament somewhat instantaneously. So that's kind of one sort of, you know, most popular mythology in conservative Christian circles. But then you get the other extreme. Uh, where people uh, argue, and kind of like Allah Down Brown, that the Bible was basically invented by Constantine and by a sherry of bishops in the fourth century to kind of bring uniformity to the Roman Empire and imposing this narrow and dogmatic religion on the diverse and peace-loving peoples of the Mediterranean world. Uh, both of those views are completely wrong. I think utterly boring, uh, if you ask me, because they're so easily dismissible. Uh, the story is a little bit more complicated. I mean, the uh, the Old Testament we largely receive from the Jewish world, you know, from the the, you know, the, the the people of Israel in light of their religious heritage, which includes, you know, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the writings. Uh, now, there were some, some Jewish books that were written in Greek or translated into Greek, and, and they were very important to Christians too, and they, they became part of what is known as the Apocrypha, writings that... Um, were written in Greek or at least were known in Greek. And Christians for a long time considered them part of their Old Testament. So you had sort of, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew scriptures, which we got from the Jews. Then other Jewish communities had these like Greek scriptures, which we, and then when the Old Testament was translated into Greek um, into the, what we call the Septuagint, they kind of get mixed together a bit and Christians use them. So that's kind of like the Old Testament slash Apocrypha where that came from with the New Testament um, as you get into the second century of Christianity, very quickly you see people venerating and using and quoting the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, a bit of Acts as well. Paul's, Paul's letters plus Hebrews are popular, and so is one um, Peter and one John. Uh, there's some other writings going around. People have questions about Second Peter and Revelation. Some people really like these other books called The Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, which is a very popular Christian text, or the Apocalypse of Peter. Uh, But the Apocalypse of Peter, people thought, "Mm, probably wasn't actually written by Peter, even though it's a nice read. Uh, And the gradual consensus that builds around that core becomes the 27 books that make our New Testament. And you can can see, if you just look at some of the books that some of the church fathers are quoting and mentioning, and they seem to regard these ones as having a certain status and being recognized. So it's it was not like a top-down imposition of the, the books in the Bible. It seems to be a, a gradual emerging consensus. Mm. And what you've described is obviously pretty complicated, uh, mm. even 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 in this summary form. To, to what extent, you know, can we expect, you know, just ordinary churchgoers to grasp this, this um, 
more complex portrait of how the Bible uh, came into being? Well, you, you may not know all the complexities. For example, you may not know the debates about the book of Revelation, how it was received in the East as opposed to the West. Um, you, you may not know all that, but what you do need to know is that the Constantinian conspiracy theory is wrong and also the kind of treasure hunting looking for inspired books to add to the kitty is also wrong. Uh, the Old Testament was inherited from Jewish communities and the New Testament was put together gradually as there was a consensus about which books were from the apostles, which books taught Christian beliefs and which books uh, were the ones that should be used in worship and had consensus amongst the churches. If you, if you know that basic idea, you, you've got the sufficient ideas around there. Um, all the other other debates um, are nice to know, but I wouldn't say they're essential or imperative. Hmm. You were talking there about briefly about how the Old Testament was um, was formed, but of course, it's another layer of complexity when you delve into how certain books of the Bible were performed. And one of one of the examples you touch on um, to illustrate um, your point is that of you know the Pentateuch, um, which is the first yeah. five books of the Bible. And I, I have a quote here where you say that although the law is universally regarded as the book of Moses and something that Moses himself wrote, it is impossible that Moses actually wrote all of the law. Could you maybe elaborate on that? Why is it implausible to think that Moses um, wrote the entirety of the first five books of the Bible? Okay, so the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch or the Torah, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, those are associated with Moses in an authorial sense, okay? Or you could say the tradition behind them certainly goes back to a figure like Moses um, or, you know, Moses himself who's, you know, using uh, a, mixed, mixed, it's a mixture of revelation and using the traditions around him uh, to talk about uh, Israel's faith and heritage. But that body of writings um, was not written in more just one setting or anything like that. Now, we know this because there's references to the death of Moses. Um, I don't think Moses wrote about his own death in the past tense, okay? And there's also references to things like, you know, um, and Abraham chased these people as far as Dan. You know, well, the land of the area of Dan, the tribe of Dan, wasn't in didn't exist in the days of Abraham or Lot or or Jacob or whoever it was, which goes to show there's a kind of um, a retrospective perspective uh, that expresses itself within uh, the Pentateuch. Okay, uh, what you have, I think, in the Pentateuch are a body of legal and narrative traditions, which were kind of you know passed on orally or in some literary form, and were then. Um, yeah, how would you say, were probably then sort of edited and put together probably just after the return from exile, uh, you know, probably during something like the 5th century or something like that. I mean, these theories, you know, change all the time, but that, that's something along those lines is the current thinking. I mean, once upon a time, they tried to divide the, the Pentateuch up into all these different sources uh, called JEPD theory, but mo most of that is broken down now. Um, you know, we, we just don't know for certain where it all came from. Uh, but, you know, we can say, well, there's some priestly themes in this bit of writing here and and you've got this Deuteronomic tradition, that kind of a thing. 
but you know the the best idea I think it is you have a body of traditions associated with Moses that get edited by a priestly circle after the exile. Uh, that's where I think the scholarly consensus is. Although I'm sure there's some Old Testament scholars who will um, refute, add, or offer different interpretations on the origins of the Pentateuch. As as well as this, um, to what extent is it important for Christians to affirm that Moses did play some role in the making of the Pentateuch? I, I'm aware that some more progressive Christians would say, you know, oh, no, he had nothing to do with it at all. Do you think it's important that we say that, yes, he did have something to do with it? Yeah, well, this, this, is a, this is an important question. How much history do you need in the Bible? Um, for example, I, I, tell, I ask my students, um, if there never was a historical Job, uh, would that be okay? And you know, if, if it's just kind of like a, like, a, like a fable or something, would that, if there never was a real Job, would that be okay? Most of them say, um, yeah, I think I can live with that. And then I say, well, if there never was a historical Jonah, would that be okay? And this gets a little bit, a little bit more controversial. And so, yeah, but I like the story of Jonah. Yeah, but is the truth of it based on there being a historical Jonah? Is the story still true, even if it's just a like a fable or a story of some kind? And so they get at that point they they get pretty divided. It's about fifty fifty. So look, I, I could still I could I I'd, I'd be fine or cozy if there's no historical Jonah. And then I say, okay, what if there never was a historical Moses? What if that was just a mythology created to justify the migration of some Canaanite tribe, um, you know, into Judea or something like that? Could you survive if there never was a historical Moses? Would that be okay? At that point, people tend to um, get a little bit more assertive and say, no, I, I, th- 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 I think you you need or you have to have a historical Moses. And then we go all the way back to historical Adam. Do you need an historical Adam? And that's another kettle of fish yeah. um, to, to get into. Um, no, I, I think there was a historical Moses um, who, was, who was responsible um, for a certain degree of the, uh, what we would call the mosaic or the Pentateuchal tradition, okay? Uh, but I don't think, you know, Moses kind of literally wrote everything that's in the first five books of the Old Testament. And you, you do have, um, like I said, I think there are these editorial themes that you do get that show that there is a post-Moses perspective operating here. And scholars of the Old Testament, scholars of the Pentateuch, uh, continue to debate the sources the composition, the editing, and the putting together of the Pentateuch. But in in one sense, there's also an area of criticism. There's an area of criticism that's called source criticism, where people like to look at the Bible as a jigsaw and then wonder how it was put together, which which in one sense is okay and fine, and that can help you understand the Bible better in a certain sense. But on the other hand, it is, it is kind of boring and doesn't tell you much. And that's why there, are, there, there arose a, a area of study called canonical criticism. And canonical criticism says, who cares what the sources were? You know, which bit Moses wrote or was post-Moses? Who cares? Just look at the final form of the book and interpret it in the form that you have it. Because ultimately, you can't really know what was behind the text. You know, once a jigsaw has been put together, you got no idea which piece they put in first and which piece came from where. You don't really know. So just abandon all that source critical stuff and just focus on the final form of the text. 
So to be honest, my well, I don't mind a little bit of source criticism because it's a little bit it's a little bit like biblical archaeology. It can be interesting in that sense. It, a lot of it's just real speculation, and I do prefer just focusing on the canonical and the received form of the text because that's the one we tend to use in um, Christian communities. That's the one that's had the biggest influence in the history of the Bible and Western culture. There's an Old Testament scholar called Tremper Longman, um, and he's known for his work. And he said, look, it's not like we can just look at the Old Testament and say, okay, this part is from Moses. You know, it's just it's just not something, you know, we have... Um, access to, but I'd, I'd like to I'd like to move on to uh, chapter two of your book, and this is entitled "The Bible is Divinely Given and Humanly Composed." Now, I suppose to what extent should we avoid trying to give a detailed account of how the Bible is both human and divine? So, could one say that we shouldn't try to mechanize a mystery like divine inspiration? Yeah, I think, uh, on one hand, trying to mechanize it is a uh, is a problematic route. Again, if you want to figure out which parts of the Bible are divine and which parts are human. Now, what, one of the tendencies at the moment in progressive Christianities is to say the bits that are from God are the bits that I agree with or at least correspond with my progressive values. And all the other stuff is simply the white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative nonsense from the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world. So people like to divide it based on their own cultural or political predilections. Uh, I don't think that's a good way to divide it up. Uh, you know, that said, we do have to ask the question, in what sense is is this a divine book if it also appears to be very human? Like I said, you know, if it's, if it's written up using sources, you know, um, if it is, if it's something that's been edited and redacted and written in human languages, it's not like it's written on um, golden tablets um, in some sort of alien language, you know, whether that's Klingon or whatever the language is that angels speak. You know, it's not some sort of mysterious text that we've then got to somehow decipher as if we're trying to um, translate alien hieroglyphics. Uh, what we have is God speaking in through human authors using human processes in a way that humans can understand. Okay, and you could say that there is this is God's divine condescension to speak to people in words, ways, and images that they can understand and they can relate to. Okay, so when God inspires a prophet, like uh, say Isaiah. Okay, he's speaking a message through Isaiah uh, that will eventually be put into a a written text, uh, will then be transmitted and then passed on to others. Okay, and so you've got God's inspiration of that author, including the inscripturation of the text. And then you've also got God's sanctification of the creaturely processes that will lead to that book then being promulgated and being put in the hands of people, say, uh, or, be, or being accessed by people in, you know, uh, 7th century, 8th century Israel, all the way through to the 21st century today. Hmm. A question that frequently comes up at this point is that of inerrancy. Uh, it's, and could you briefly explain why, some evangelicals, and it's important to say not all, are are very insistent that the Bible can't have any errors in it. Um, Christians have always regarded their scriptures as true and trustworthy. Okay, so that that's you know we believe when God speaks to us, He speaks the truth. 
whether that's, you know, uh, in the Pentateuch, in the book of Daniel, in the Gospels, when God speaks, he speaks the truth. And if you believe that he speaks the truth, then you, you would assume by implication that it's not untrue. It's not error. It's not erroneous. It's not false. But the issue is, in what sense is the Bible true or in what sense is it not untrue? Is the Bible true only on a religious and theological level? Is it true even when it speaks to matters of history? Is it consistently true in the theatre of ethics? Is it also um, equally and always true as a scientific document? You know, so uh, is Genesis 1 a scientifically true statement about the origins of the cosmos? Or is Genesis 1 a mixture of myth and, sorry, myth and parable? something along those lines. So it, it does get a little bit complicated trying to say how is the Bible true, in what areas is it true, or how is it not untrue? Because, I mean, if you, if you take a um, crassly literal approach, then you would have to say there are some errors because I don't think Genesis 1 records literally how the, how the world came to be. I think it describes literarily that we live in a God-centered universe and you worship God, you don't worship the stars, you worship the one who made the stars. Or if you go to the Gospels, okay, um, if you compare Matthew, Mark, uh, the, the, three, the three synoptic Gospels, as we call them, about, you know, when did what did Jesus do when he came to the town of Jericho? Did he heal a beggar on the way in or did he heal one on the way out? You know, it's a difference, I think, between Mark and um, Luke. Um, did he heal one blind man or two blind men? You know, Matthew's got two. Matthew, Matthew just doubles everything. It's, it's like, okay, I'll have two lepers. I'll have two demoniacs. It's, he just doubles everything for some reason. Um, now, if you, if, you if you take these things as a strictly literal level, you would have to say that they do, they do contradict. But if you say, look, the evangelists are just recording something that happened in Jesus' life and ministry, and in keeping with the conventions of the day, they're actually quite able to use a little bit of artistic license to tell the story in a fresh, exciting way, uh, because, you know, all all retellings of a story have a certain degree of embellishment or a certain degree of interpretation or a certain artistic license. Uh, that's okay for them that they're still writing reliable history of Jesus, even if they don't, um, even if they don't do everything in the sort of the same really wooden way that we we would normally do history today. So that that's why that's why the the sort of the inerrancy question um, can be uh, a hairy one because you've got to define in what areas is the Bible true and in what sense is it not untrue. And you know you can find church fathers from Augustine and onwards, you know, in the Middle Ages, the reformers, saying that the Bible is true in 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 some in some credible sense. Okay, but in the in the late 19th and 20th century, uh, as there was a debate between modernity and Christianity, as there were big debates about the nature of the Bible in Protestant denominations, in that context, uh, the question of inerrancy really did become a big issue, and it became kind of like a boundary marker, um, defining uh, one group from another group within Protestantism, you know, those who were liberal, who wanted a kind of a Christianity 
that sat well within the context of modernity with its critique of the idea of a religion of revelation. They obviously took a lower view of the Bible and you know, they would say uh, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's not really history. It's not really authoritative. And, and, and they would say things like, if you make the Bible your authority, then you're turning the Bible into a paper pope. Okay, no, no one likes a pope, real pope or paper pope. You know, you shouldn't turn the Bible into a blind authority that you should follow. Okay, that was the kind of liberal project. Um, the the fundamentalists, as they were known as, who believed in the fundamentals of the faith in the early twentieth century, uh, they weren't going to marry themselves to modernity. They didn't accept the modernist critique of religion. And instead, they wanted to maintain the truth of the Bible, and they often used the language of inerrancy, okay, which was partly uh, a retrieval of what Christians always believed, but it also it was kind of defined over and against the issues of the day. So it does have a kind of – inerrancy can have an anti-modern feel to it. Sometimes, however, I think they went a bridge too far and claimed more than they could really prove when it came to inerrancy. Like, you know, if we had the original manuscripts of the Bible, we'd see that there are no contradictions. Um, or, you know, they would try to come up with very creative ways of trying to solve the alleged inconsistencies between, you know, what did what did Jesus do when he came into Jericho? Did he hear one or two? They, they would really labor the explanations for that rather than simply admit that, you know, some the, the evangelists were not operating with the same level of exactitude that we might prefer as, as we do in our own context. And also in the, in the American context in particular, inerrancy, um, really did become the one doctrine to rule. It was the one ring to rule them all, to use Lord of the Rings. It's like, you know, you can believe anything you like about the Trinity, but as long as you believe in inerrancy, you're cool, okay? And it really did take, took on a, a whole central meaning, which is why the Evangelical Theological Society has got two doctrines you have to believe to be a member, the Trinity and inerrancy. You don't even have to believe the you don't even have to believe the evangel, which is the gospel, in order to be a member of the evangelical theological society. Just Trinity and inerrancy is all you need, which goes to show um, the significance of inerrancy for certain pockets of American Christianity. Yeah, and the first place I I came across um, your views on this topic were in um, a Zondervan Counterpoints book um, that you did, and I think the other contributors there was Pete Ends. There Kevin was, Van Hootsa, Al Mola. Yeah, yeah and uh, John John Frank, I think, was the other one. John Frankie, yeah. I played the role of one sane guy in the asylum. Oh. Um, as I was trying to tell it. Um, and yeah. to, to what extent has your has your views on the question of inerrancy, have they evolved since this contribution, or do you think they've stayed the, stayed the same? Yeah, no, I, I still think I'm right. Again, I have no problem talking about the Bible as true and trustworthy, but we have to make sure that that we know the correct coordinates in order to make that to make sense of that. We don't want to claim too little for the Bible. Well, it's only true when it's talking about religion. Um, it's got nothing to do with history or nothing to do with ethics. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to make a minimalist claim for the truth of the Bible. But then again, I, I don't want to make a, a claim that's so massive that the Bible is true, absolutely every single detail, because you you could just be setting yourself up to fall and fail. And to be perfectly honest, um, if you come up with this big maximalist definition of how the Bible is true, it just takes one little thing that you can't explain, one little thing that doesn't seem quite right, and someone's entire faith can unravel. 
Okay. Mm. So you you need you, you don't want a minimalist definition of it, but you don't want something that's so big that it's like a, a big uh how, you know, like it's like a, like a big Jenga uh, a block up to the sky, and it just takes that one little um, niggling question, and the whole thing comes down around you. And I also think we've got to when we talk about inerrancy or the truth of the Bible, we've we've got to have a look at how theologians of the past have articulated this. Um, rather than rely on modern or contemporary statements that tend to be responding more to the culture at the time rather than retrieving how, how Christians have ordinarily spoken about the truth and authority of scriptures. Mm. And, and when it comes to the authority of, of the Bible, there's a couple of um, technical phrases that sometimes get thrown around in this debate that maybe you could um, define and maybe say whether you you agree or not. So one is that of divine accommodation, which I think you've alluded to um, so far. Yeah. yeah. And and the other is um, a trajectory hermeneutic. Yeah. Well, they're, so. they're, they're, two, they're two slightly separate issues. The divine accommodation is how, you know, God accommodates to, you know, to speak to people in their worldview in a way and language in a way they can understand. Okay. Um, trying to explain, you know, quantum physics to people living in the Bronze Age was probably not going to work. Okay, so God didn't bother. They just, you just don't have the, the tools or the, the categories um, at the time to do it. So God accommodates himself so he can speak the truth of himself, you know, the truth of his purpose and his plan in the world in a way that's going to make sense to the initial audience and the subsequent audiences over the centuries. Okay, so that, that's 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 one. That's what divine accommodation is. God speaks to us in a way we can understand, not something. Okay, here's what I'm saying, but don't worry. In two thousand years from now, people will get what I'm saying. Uh, that's not really a, a healthy way to view it. Mm-hmm. The trajectory view is something that's associated with a, uh, a Canadian scholar called William Webb, and he deals with some of the tricky eth- ethical questions about the Bible. And I find this very interesting. Uh, one questions uh, I ask to students, I say this to them, um, is an ethical system that explicitly calls for the ab- abolishment of slavery, is that better than an ethical system that doesn't call for the explicit abolishment or abolition of slavery? Okay. So the question, which one is better, an ethical system that explicitly calls for the uh, abolishment of slavery or an ethical system that doesn't call the abolishment of slavery. And they always say, well, obviously, the ethical system that calls for the abolishment of slavery. And then I say, does the Bible explicitly call for the abolishment of slavery? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, no. Actually, it, in some cases, it tells the Israelites to take slaves when they go to war and tell slaves to obey their masters, uh, which, you know, which makes for some very uncomfortable reading. And then I ask the question, is the Bible a pro or anti-slavery book? You know, then this is some of the debates we have today. And this was obviously debates they had in 19th century America during the abolition, uh, abolitionist controversy uh, that went on before the American Civil War. Uh, but what Bill Webb does, he says, look, on the one hand, uh, the Bible deals with the world as it is, where there is slavery. And, you know, and there doesn't seem to be any prospect of slavery because slavery, as bad and cruel as it was, was also the only welfare system that they largely had uh, in some places. And it was, you know, the the only thing you could do with survivors of massive intertribal conflicts and the like. 
So he says, yeah, that the Bible sort of has uh, accepts that the slavery is part of the furniture, so to speak. But there are things that are affirmed in the Bible that would indicate that there is a natural and inevitable logical consequence that would lead people to abolish slavery. And you could say that's, you know, based on the Exodus, which, you know, well, the, the main theme of the Old Testament is, you know, I am the God who set you out of, who set you free from Egypt, the land of slavery. So God is an emancipating God. You could look at... Um, Jesus, who died a slave's death, the Apostle Paul says that in Christ there's neither slave nor free. Um, he tries to, uh, he or he urges Philemon to to manumit um, uh, Onesimus to Paul's own custody. Uh, he bans Christians for being slave freighters uh, in the pastoral letters, and eventually Christians are um, pushing and calling for slavery to be abolished. And you could say the climax of that really comes in someone like William Wilberforce. Now, there is no technical verse that says thou shalt not have slaves, but you could argue that there is a trajectory being created from Exodus all the way through um, to Paul and, and beyond, which, which makes the abolishment of slavery normal, natural, and inevitable. Okay, so that's what William Webb means by a trajectory hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the science of interpretation. And I find that a, a very useful tool for thinking about some of those issues. Mm. And a, a question that kind of naturally comes up, you know, when you're talking about a trajectory hermeneutic is uh, the question of cherry picking, like that, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and obviously, something you write in the book is God's word is a lamp and guide to our feet, not a buffet of religious ideas we can pick and choose from um and I, I really like that phrase but i suppose you know to what is what is the, the difference between us um deciding you know about slavery you know that uh, uh well that's that's not on and like maybe deciding there could be other you know modern ideas um about you know sexuality or gender or anything mm -hmm. that more progressive christians they would say Oh well, there's a trajectory here as well. Or yeah, you know. yeah. People would also try to apply the trajectory argument to sexuality, particularly um, you know homosexual gay relationships, and you can see how they they could do that uh, in a way. Uh, in William Webb's case, he doesn't find that convincing because he thinks there is something rooted in creation about the uh, the, the the naturalness and the normativity of male and female together that he he thinks um, rules out that kind of trajectory mm. um so that, that that's that's why bill webb's book is called um you know slaves women and homosexuals and he he looks at the th those three areas you know about women in the bible the topic of slavery and the topic of um same-sex relationships uh yeah i mean some people some people will do that a little bit differently and uh of a more progressive event would want to see a natural tra trajectory here uh, I can see where they're coming from, but I'm probably more more likely to side with William Webb on that one. I'd like to uh, move on to talk about Jesus a bit, which is never never a bad idea. It's always uh, a good idea. Yeah. So the, the last chapter of your book is entitled, Christ is the Center of the Christian Bible. If if someone were to say or say to you that they really didn't need the Old Testament or the Catholic letters or the Pauline epistles, all I needed were, were the Gospels, you know, actually... I don't know um, if you've ever um, if you've ever used um, reformed Reddit. I don't know if you're a Reddit guy, but uh, no, no. no. <laughs> but um, someone actually posted like this exact thing this week, where he said, "I met someone who claims that they believe in Jesus' teachings, but only Jesus' teachings. 
Because of that, they don't believe in the Old Testament. They disregard everything Paul said uh, that Jesus did not say. And uh, my gosh, sounds sounds like a Marcionite and an Ebionite made a baby. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Marcionites rejected the Old Testament, and the Ebionites rejected the teachings of Paul. Uh, they 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 went basically just with the Gospel of Matthew. Um, yeah, that is. Um, I don't know what the correct Irish word would be, but I think in America they would say totes cray cray. Um, yeah, that's that's a that's a weird view. Um, yeah, I mean, I I do believe in the um, special status of the. I'm, I'm a gospel scholar, so I do think the gospel should be um, first and foremost in our theology, in our teaching, and in our preaching. Um, I wrote a book called The Gospel of the Lord, How the Early Church Wrote the, wrote the Story of Jesus, where I explain you know, where the Gospels come from. And one thing you do notice in the second century is that um, people quote from the Gospels more than anything else. Um, a lot of the Christians are, in, in a real sense, red-letter Christians. They really do value the words and teachings of the Lord Jesus himself. And that's why the most popular texts that were translated or or um copied were like manuscripts of the gospel of matthew or the gospel of luke so there's a very important pace place for um for jesus and the gospels but the gospels only make sense as the fulfillment of the old testament and the gospels are a great foundation for then to study uh the pauline epistles and the catholic epistles okay so uh, if you if you believe in Jesus, you would also believe that he commissioned his you know apostles, uh, and he sent and he sent them out into all the world. And those apostles wrote epistles. And so if you believe in Jesus, you should also believe in the apostles that he sent out, and the letters about Jesus that they wrote, um, arguably under divine inspiration. So I, I would say far from actually venerating Jesus, uh, that actually is rejecting uh, a lot of his authority. And and what he uh, conducted, because he's also the Lord of the Church, the Lord of the Apostles, and the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church is part of the legacy of Jesus Himself. Mm. You'd have to question how much of an, an impression Jesus left if, after he's gone, the, the the apostles just start writing loads of stuff that's just completely contrary to his <laughs> teachings. You know, exactly. Yeah. On this um, note of you know Jesus as being the center and. Um, you you describe the early church's reading of the Old Testament in light of Christ as um, Christotelic, um, so the way that the um, the New Testament authors use their Old Testament. So, I suppose a, a natural question that comes up here is: to what extent is Jesus in the Old Testament? Um, is it simply the case that the disciples were basically reading Jesus into the Old Testament, or is the Old Testament already setting up the Jesus profile and? giving signposts for what is to come, would you say? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big question as well. Um, first of all, so you should acknowledge that the Christotelic as a uh, term, which means, you know, Christ is the goal of Scripture, Christos and Telos, that comes from Peter Enns, which I find a useful uh, useful way of thinking about Christ as the, the goal of Scripture. Now, the... the the way Christ relates to the Old Testament, you can do this in a number of ways, and and I think they're all they're all kind of valid in a way. First of all, you have a prophetic sense, in which the Old Testament points to a prophetic figure or a messianic figure who is going to come. So, like another prophet, like Moses from Deuteronomy eighteen, or someone from um, um, the tribe from the, the tribe of Judah. Uh, according to Numbers 24 and Genesis 49, these sort of messianic prophecies. You also find stuff, obviously, in uh, some of the prophets, 
like you know Micah chapter four and the like. So there, there are these you might call them um, prophetic and messianic prophecies about a future deliverer or a divine agent of salvation for God's people. So that's the first sense in which you can say Jesus is the fulfillment or the goal in this prophetic or messianic sense. Then you could have what is a more of a typological reading where if you if you read the Old Testament retrospectively in light of the new, believing that they're part of the one and the same story. So if you read the, the Bible canonically, okay, the two Testaments joined by the one plan and purpose of God that culminates in Christ, then you can see many um, what, what scholars call typological images of Christ, where a certain figure becomes a type of Christ, or maybe a better word would be a prefiguration of Christ. Mm. So you could you could there give examples like um, the angel of the Lord, okay, is a prefiguration of Christ, you know. Um, now some would say it is the uh, the angel of the Lord is the is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a type of Christophany and appearance. I mean, this is disputed. I've got a colleague called Andrew Malone who's written a whole book on this. He's not a big he's not a big fan of the Christophany thesis, um, you know. But the angel of the Lord figure could be a, a prefiguration of Christ. You know, um, Isaac. You know, the one who's um, uh, going to be sacrificed. Um, that's a kind of prefiguration of Christ, according to many of the church fathers. Um, in Isaiah seven. Um, the uh, child to be born to a young maiden, which is a sign of salvation in, in the age of Hezekiah. Uh, I think that's treated not as a prophecy, but as a typological pattern to be repeated um, at a new stage of redemptive history when you get to the Gospels. A third sense, then, you could say is more of a explicitly Christian reading, okay? Uh, if you believe the words of Jesus, that um, the scriptures point to him and they're about him, uh, if you go back and read the Testament, Old Testament with that conviction, what does it mean? Well, it's, it means you can understand the servant of Isaiah. You know, I think it would have the, the, fourth, ser- the fourth servant song um, as, a, as, an, as an indication of Christ. Now, whether you, it's somewhere between prophetic and typological, but it's certainly intimating a lot of Jesus' own ministry. And Jesus kind of, I, I think, was one of the first to explain his mission in light of Isaiah 53, okay? Now, if you go to Isaiah 53, there's a big debate about who is the servant. Is it just a metaphor for Israel? Is it referring to a particular prophet or a prophet who uh, refers to Israel? But Jesus definitely uh, felt comfortable um, applying the language of Isaiah to himself, and that then sort of urged the early church to go back through the scriptures, places like Isaiah, and to see in it, a story that was connected to the story of Jesus and find ways in which the story of Jesus made sense of Isaiah, not just, you know, Isaiah pointing to Jesus, but looking at the story of Jesus and then going back to Isaiah, reading, you might say, Richard Hayes has got a very good line, he he calls this reading backwards, reading the old in light of the new and finding and discovering new coherences and new correspondences that make sense uh, in light of certain um, commitments to one canonical story. Hmm. I'm actually reading that book by Richard Hayes at the minute. Uh, reading uh, what's it called? Uh, I think it's called Echoes. Reading Backwards. Well, there's the one Echoes of Scripture in the, yep. in the Gospels. That's what I'm reading, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, yeah. So he's got two. He's got a little one, which is called Reading Backwards, and the bigger one is the Echoes of Scripture um, in the Gospels. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous book, and you'll re- it's reading a book like that really helps you understand how saturated uh, the Gospels are with the Old Testament. Uh, you get citations and allusions and echoes of uh, everywhere. And that's because the evangelists themselves believe that it is acceptable, normal, not just permissible, but uh, actually mandatory now to go back and don't read the Old Testament on its own. Read it in light of faith in Christ as the risen Lord. And if you read the Old Testament in light of that presupposition, what are the new um avenues, the new nuances, uh, the new vistas of meaning that suddenly jump out at you. Yeah. Um, th- this, might be a, this might be a silly question, but um, to what extent um, is typological? You mentioned that kind of interpretation. How is that different from allegorical interpretation? What's, what would the difference be between the two? Okay. That typological tries to find a correspondence between uh, Christ and some pattern, person, or event in the Old Testament. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now it is you could argue that allegorical uh, is something where a symbolic meaning is maybe more created by the act of reading itself, and it's not the precise pertin- personal pattern that is really important. It's it's a far more creative act of finding Christ or some sort of spiritual truth. In, in the Old Testament. Now, I, th- I think I'll go on a, on a limb here and say I think allegory does have its place um, as a kind of creative reading of the Old Testament. I mean, classically, you could say that the Song of Songs, you know, where people have seen this as a metaphor between the love of Christ and his church. Uh, for some people, they cringe at that. Other people like that kind of way of reading the Song of Songs. Uh, but again, if, if doing allegory, as long as you have what I call a canonical seatbelt, I think you can get away with that. But if you start doing some really weird esoteric kind of thing in the way you read, you know, parts of the Old Testament or the prophets, um, if, if it feels weird, it probably is, uh, would be my advice. Uh, but many of the church fathers engaged in allegorical readings uh, some are more compelling and commendable than others. Yes, I, I think uh, there was um, Oregon, I think, was one of the big ones. <laughs> he had one about an allegorical reading of the uh, the split hoof thing in uh, Leviticus that I remember thinking, what is this? What was this guy on? Um, yeah. But yeah. then again, go read some Matthew Henry. And to be perfectly honest, uh, he's not much different in places. He's got some uh, rather peculiar... Um, uh, gleamings from how he does the Old Testament as well. Mm. On a similar note, um, you devote some time in the chapter to warning against what you refer to as Christomonism. Obviously, we've been talking about how we how we see Jesus in the in the Old Testament, but and um, what is this danger of Christomonism? Uh, is it a genuine problem in the church? Do you think? Or? I, I think it is. It's like. You know, on the one hand, I believe in a Christotelic way of interpretation that Christ is the goal of Scripture. But that doesn't mean you should abandon or forget that it's also a God story, okay? There's also an ethical dimension to it. There's also a dimension that addresses um, or tells us something about the people of God. And I don't think every Old Testament uh, sermon 
should end up quoting John 3.16 at the end. I mean, let, let me give you an example. You know, the story of David and Bathsheba. You know, you could you, know, you could teach, preach that and say, look, you know, David had a few failures, but lucky for us, you know, we've got a new David and he's faithful where David failed. Okay, so all hail the new David. Now, I think that's that's at one level, it's legitimate. But here's another thing. When you read the story or preach the story of David and Bathsheba, here's the other thing. Don't commit sexual abuse against women. I think that's another important mess. And I think, you know, and also don't murder to cover up your sexual abuse. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to jump to the kind of um, the easy payoff with the Christotelic side without also including what is the ethical side or the th- or the thing about what does this tell us about God or what does it tell us about God's purpose in the world or what does it tell us about who we are as the people of God. Um, don't always jump to the, um, the Christological payoff without wrestling as well with the other features of the story because they're just as important as the Christological dimension, whether that's prophetic, typological, or even heaven forfend allegorical. There's a kind of a variant of this um, issue where certain pastors would say that Jesus is the the definitive and clearest revelation of God. Kind of, he's the kind of the the most when Jesus on the cross. That's the most clear revelation of God we can ever get. So we have to interpret all of Scripture in light of in light of that. To what extent do you think that's a that's a sensible idea, or does that fall into the the Christomonism? Um, problem, do you think? Uh, no, I, I, I would argue that um, there is something uh, extra special about um, the incarnation. Uh, normally when theologians talk about revelation, they talk about general revelation or, or natural revelation through the natural world. Then they say there's special revelation, which is, you know, God's acts in history, God God's acts in giving scripture, the preaching of the apostles and the prophets, and then you've got the incarnation. Um, I tend to put the incarnation in a separate category. So I talk about, uh, I do this in my book, Evangelical Theology. I talk about natural revelation, special revelation, which is like history, um, scripture, and apostolic preaching. But then I say there's the incarnation, and that should be in a special category of its own. Because we don't merely have, in the incarnation, you know, we have not merely the proclamation of God. We have not merely a, a book, pages inspired by God. We have God in a fully orbed personal sense. We have the union of divinity and flesh in the man, Christ Jesus. So I, I do put um, incarnation into its own special category, okay, um, rather than simply treating it as a, a slight variation of special revelation. Um, I wouldn't say that's the danger of Christo uh, monism. Um, I would say that's simply recognizing what is genuinely special of the revelation. Now, of course, if you said um, that's the only revelation and the history doesn't matter, nature doesn't matter, prophecy and the apostolic word doesn't matter, yet that's when I've got a bit of a problem. If you kind of put all your eggs in the basket of incarnation and that leads you to denigrate the Old Testament and to reject the apostles, um, kind of like your reformed um, Reddit crew was doing, uh, that's when I think your Jesus monism has gone to a very, very crazy place that I cannot follow. Okay. So in conclusion, um, and this has been a very interesting conversation where you've laid out some of the wonderful ways in which the Bible is 
um, compelling and messy at the same time. Um, so for someone who is listening to this podcast and they're perhaps trying to come to terms with the Bible, trying to read it better, trying to understand it, um, what advice would you give them besides getting your book, which of course um, I'm sure is a good thing to recommend as well. But Oh, yes, yes, I'll be very happy if they um, have a read of the book. Um, yeah, well, uh, one is I hope, I hope you're reading the Bible a lot. Um, you know, I, I reckon read one chapter Old Testament, one chapter New Testament a day. I think that's good. And, and work periodically through a book. You know, I'm, I'm currently reading through 2 Corinthians and parts of the Psalms. So I would urge people, first of all, to read the book. And if you come across something that seems odd, that makes you feel uncomfortable, you know, underline it, circle it, because there is a great opportunity to grow in your relationship with God or or to think through things in a whole new way like you've never done it before, okay? Uh, and th- this can be good in, in, in the sense of the training of, of uh, apologetics in in sense because some people do like to, you know, um, throw a few kind of, I think, low blows about the Bible, um, you know, say things like, you know, the Bible's, uh, you know, a a pro-slavery book or, you know, or, or, or it was invented by Constantine, um, that kind of thing. Um, I think doing that, that sort of stuff will better prepare you to think about the Bible in a thoughtful and positive way. But I, I, I do think it will also help if you get yourself a couple of good tools to help you with reading scripture. Now, that could be something like getting a study Bible, you know, NIV, ESV, NRSV. I think, I think those are, those are very message. helpful. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> that, 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 that would be a third stage. That's a third oh, yeah. stage. I, I, think, I think the message is fine as long as you remember it. It's more interpretation than translation. Um, so maybe a study Bible or get like a um, something like a one Bible commentary or even like a, a Bible backgrounds commentary like Craig Keener's Bible backgrounds commentary on the New Testament is absolute gold. It's 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 an awesome resource that served many pastors and students and and Christian men and women for um uh, or over two decades now. Uh, get yourself some good resources that can help that can help you out when you're reading the Bible as well. Well, it's been great to speak to you, Mike. I had to I had to train myself there not to say Doctor Bird because that's um, right. We're all yeah. uh, we're all we're all equal here. Actually, the Bible says, "Call no man, call no man teacher." You have one one teacher, and that is the Messiah. Oh, wow. so I think I think not using the um the doctor title uh, actually is biblical. Uh, but uh, I can't see my American friends um, catching that one anytime soon. Okay, but here we are. There well, we are. Anyway, I I appreciate uh, you coming on and I'll put a link to your book in the description. No worries, Patrick. Always a pleasure to talk to you and a big hello and thank you to all the listeners for listening.